what are the types of, what do you lean into more now? Like, what are you seeing? Are the lending criteria getting tighter? Are like, yeah, the market's come to shit. What's that look like? Welcome to the Winning Move podcast. We have another awesome guest today. I, I have you in my phone as Bo the Lender, <laughs> right? So I, Bo the Lender, Bo's going to talk about how you can qualify for any commercial loan and how to use commercial loan, loans the right way. And I want to hear about how you got crushed in 2008. I didn't know that happened. I want to know what you did wrong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> let's get going. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. So I am, uh, what am I, 44, almost turning 45. I got into real estate at the age of 20 as a residential mortgage broker. I was uh, didn't go to college. Um, got my real, uh, I started as a telemarketer. So I met a guy at the gym. We'd, we'd work out together. And he was a, he was a car salesman. And he got into the loan business and he's like, man, you should come work for our, our brokerage. Uh, we're crushing it. So I went on when I was 20, I started telemarketing for this mortgage company. And I and I was so good on the phone. I was getting all these guys deals and they were getting, you know, six, 10, $15,000 paychecks on these loans. And I quickly got my in California, you need at that time, you needed your real estate license to originate loans. So I got my my real estate license and I started originating loans, essentially. And then I uh, did that pretty much for many years. And then I moved to Nevada to open a branch because Nevada is a brick and mortar state. You have to be physically in Nevada to have a Nevada license. So I did that. We, we opened a company in, in, uh, in uh, Incline Village. Did that. Kind of had a falling out with my business partner. Decided to move to Vegas. At this time, I was buying up properties all over Nevada. And Nevada was like the hardest hit state. I didn't know what a downturn looked like. And I didn't know this was going to be one of the biggest downturns of our lives. You know, we had Lehman Brothers, all these banks failed. So I remember I called my mom because I was like strapped, the lending business froze. And I was like, what should I do? I have like eight properties that aren't cash flowing. I leveraged to the hilt, had a hundred grand in credit card debt. And I was maybe in my mid or late 20s at the time. And uh, she's like, you got to move home. So I moved, I moved home. I basically walked away from, I sold what I could, walked away from a bunch of properties, got foreclosed on, ruined my credit. And that was, I was so over leveraged that even when the market started teetering, I went downhill. I didn't know anything about real estate investing at that time. And then, uh, so I moved back to the Bay Area. I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't have a college education. I have no skill sets other than real estate and lending. So I started selling real estate and, and originating loans. Uh, but the loan business just sucked and you just couldn't get deals done. And so basically, uh, ended up meeting a gentleman and he had a hard money fund. And this was before all the big national funds were around, like the RCNs of the world, all these funds, right? There's none of them. Yeah. So we had a, like a mom and pop fund with a, ah, probably about 60 million in it. And I started originating hard money, fix and flip and construction loans. And then I got, I said, you know what? I'm lending money to these guys. I can start flipping houses. So I started flipping houses. And, and remember, I had terrible credit because I just foreclosed on a bunch of houses. I had no money. So I partnered with a contractor and a money partner. And we'd get a hard money loan. The money partner would put down the down payment. The contractor would do things at cost. We started flipping houses. And we did that for a while, couple, you know, years. And then uh, actually, I, I started a real estate investor club at the time. I was started to do a little bit of social media marketing before it was even known. And a friend made a highlight video of me at, at one of my events. And uh, this is going to lead into this part of the story. So I get a call one day and it was a production company. They're like, hey, we saw you on, or they didn't even tell me, hey, would you be interested in doing a house flipping TV show? 
And I'm like, yeah, I always wanted 15 seconds of fame. So I actually casted for the show, got got on a show. We did 12 episodes for a, a TV show on, which ended up being purchased by HGTV. It was called Flip It to Win It. So we did 12 episodes. It was uh, teams of two that would compete against each other for flipping properties. We'd buy on the Cornell steps and the, all that stuff. So that was in 2013 and 14. And, um, and then, you know, I still do the hard money and the commercial lending. Um, but as I evolved, I got more into doing commercial loans and that's where I'm at today. So I do a combination of SBA loans and, and, um, and commercial multifamily bridge, construction loans, development loans. And I still have my fix and flippers that I service, right? And people come to me because I can, can serve. I don't just work with national funds. I have individual funds in different states that yeah. do certain things. So, so really people come to me for my expertise because it's, it's not a one size fits all, you know, anybody can do a cookie cutter fix and flip loan, but there's a difference when there's, you know, different moving parts with the, with the transaction. Bro, how did you get your fucking credit fixed? Uh, you know, what's funny. I went to like creditrepair.com and I just did what they said. I paid like 40 bucks a month and I would dispute everything. And over time now, I mean, my credit score right now is 800 with no delinquencies at all. So it's just a time thing. Everything falls off after a couple of years, but you know, it was tough. I didn't have any credit cards for a long time. <laughs> you know, you talk about when I was in my early twenties, I thought I was going to be this big time guy. And I had a literally an early midlife crisis because when you lose everything and then like you, I, the turning point, I didn't get to this part was in 2007 when I moved back to the Bay area, I had no money. Right. And I didn't want to ask my parents because I got my parents into a real estate deal and they lost. They had a, I think they foreclosed on that house actually. And so I felt guilty, right? Like shouldn't have gotten them into buying houses with me because I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't understand cash flow, real estate investing. So I, I, I called my brother. I said, his name is Damien. I'm like, Damien, um, I'm in a bad shape. And I just, just start crying like a baby. And he's like, what do you need, man? I'll help you out. And I'm like, can you lend me five grand? And he did. He wrote a check. My brother's always been good with his money. He wrote me a check. And ever since that, I never looked back, you know, did the TV show. And um, I was never I was never really in love with fix and flip business. I mean, will, will I still flip houses? Yes. But I'm not somebody who wants to have a big flipping operation. Yeah. So then I bought a, I started buying properties in the Midwest. I thought it would be a good idea to start buying these cash flowing properties we talked about. I was buying in South Bend, Indiana. And then I own some properties in, in uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, but what I've really learned over the years is that um, there's always a better way to operate businesses. And uh, I'm fortunate to have really successful real estate friends as, and business owners, right? So all my friends are very entrepreneurial. Sometimes I catch myself looking at them like, God, I wish, what are they doing differently than I am? But it, it's a blessing to have so many smart friends around you. I have, guys that are buying $60 million apartment complexes that I'm friends with. Um, and they syndicate the deals, they raise the money. I have other friends that are just high level uh, fix and flippers. I have friends that are, you know, wholesaling hundreds of properties a year. So I get a good look. And what I've gotten really good at doing is, is really like reverse it, putting deals together. If I really look at my career over 24 years, I've put hundreds of millions of dollars of deals together. I've been a real, um, I'm a licensed real estate broker since, I was a licensed real estate agent since 2001, I believe, a broker since 2007. I've been around the block. I have the skill sets, right? Because when you're on the financing side, you, you really get to see how deals are structured and how to, how to get deals done. So people come to me, like I have a, 
very experienced builder. He's built over 2000 homes and he got pissed off at banks. And he's like, Hey, can you get these deals done? I just did like eight or nine deals for him, two construction loans, a bunch of refinances. He doesn't want to deal with it. So I, I give people good pricing, right? I don't ever overcharge people. I give them good, good pricing and really good advice. Let's structure it this way. Cause you know, let's not go into a DSCR loan and get it, go into a five-year prepay or a three-year prepay rates are going to come down. I put them in a two-year bridge loan, get them a good rate, no prepay so they can refinance and exit. So giving people good advice is critical. I just helped a guy um, buy an old car dealership. He wanted to start a new business. So he's buying this, this, this building. Um, and then he needed some working capital. He's going to, he's, he's starting a he's selling electric vehicles. So his business is going to be selling resale, resale uh, used uh, electric vehicles. And I just did about a $3.9 million deal for him. So I got into doing, I taught myself how to do SBA financing. So I do SBA 7A, 504. I work with banks and non-bank SBA lenders, self-storage. Right now I'm working on a marina. We're, we're funding a marina. And actually what I've really learned to do is, is um, so on this marina, they need some equity for the deal to make it work because he's a little bit short of the down payment. So I'm going to put up about a hundred grand with a partner and we're going to own a portion of this marina. So I, now I'm getting... I'm seeing all these good deals, right? And I, the light bulb goes off. It's like, why don't I own a little piece of all these businesses that come? I've got a lot of people with money. I can uh, vet the deals with some of my partners and then just go in and, and own portions of businesses and not have to go on and guarantee the loans. Bro, that is awesome. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to guarantee the loans. So you just didn't know fucking anything about real estate and you were just buying deals to buy deals and you were just buying a bunch of crazy deals that didn't cash flow? So let me, my first house I bought, I lived in San Ramon, California, which is a very expensive area. I was like 21 years old and I found this I, through a friend. This guy was selling this duet and it's an attached duplex, but you own one side of it. And I couldn't qualify for the loan, but he said, Hey, I'll lease option it to you. I said, great. We set the price up front of 325. This was in 2000, whatever it was, early 2000s. Um, and so, um, when the year went up and then I, I lived in the master bedroom and I rented two of the other rooms out to my friends. So I house hacked before I knew what house hacking was. And then when the year came up, the property appraised at 375, I built in 50 grand equity. I ended up buying, you know, closing on, we treated it. There was a lender that would treat it almost as a refinance. So I did that. I closed on it, owned the property. And then I moved to Tahoe and sold the property to my brother actually. But I look back at all these homes I've owned over the years. And the biggest mistake I did was I, I got rid of houses, right? I, I flipped houses and I didn't keep as many of as I should have in the Bay Area. That house today that I bought for 325 is worth a million three for an example, right? So like, why didn't I keep that, right? I didn't, I didn't have the magnitude. So when I, when I got this bright idea to go in, because money was so easy back then, you don't even understand. I could get 100% financing on non-owner occupied properties, right? And so all you needed is a heartbeat and a 660 credit score and you could, qualify. So I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was banking on appreciation. It was like a frenzy. All of us were in this like frenzy. We thought, that, you know, prices would never, they would always go up a hundred grand a year. We just didn't mm -hmm. have any, we didn't have these meetups that we have, like your meetup and my meetup. And like, we didn't understand the basic concepts of, you know, debt service coverage ratio and cash flow. And we we're just like, Hey, you know, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to put a renter in. And even if it's negative, a couple hundred bucks a month, no big deal. It's going to appreciate a hundred grand a year. I just didn't, I didn't know. And I was stupid, you know, because I didn't educate myself. I mean, we, this was like kind of before YouTube was big, right? I don't even think YouTube yeah. was out. 
And so we didn't have the educational platforms we have today. And so was, were they on a bunch of arms or was it just a bunch of stuff that just wasn't cash flowing? Yeah, so they were, um, back then we had what we called subprime loans where we, it would be a two-year fixed and then it would adjust after two years. It was a 228, so fixed for two years. And you didn't really need much to qualify. So I would go in and get 100% financing. Some of them were 80-20s where you'd have a first and a second and, and you could qualify for 100% financing on non-owner. Now you need 25% down for non-owner stuff. Yeah, And so I would go in just thinking, oh, okay, well, um, it's almost a break even, even if I lose a couple hundred bucks a month, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to refi it eventually and, and, and then lower the debt payment. But that didn't happen because in Nevada, where I was buying, all these houses went down like 60% in 2007, eight, nine, right? It just yeah. went from, I had just bought a house in Las Vegas in 2000, I think early, late 2006 or early 2007, a brand new home. I was living in a brand new T.R. Horton home. And that was when the shit hit the fan. And I had that call with my mom and said, what should I do? You know, I'm like, I was stuck. I was stuck. I went from making good money to making no money because the lending business froze. I could have probably worked my way out if I had a, if I had a, you know, a, a, just a normal job and I could have just ate the, ate the negative payments, but you know, it is what it is. And we, we live and we learn. And um, I just sometimes look at some people out there that haven't seen like something that nasty. I hope they never see something that nasty because it was. And people always think like, how many flips, how many flippers out there today get saved because the market appreciates and they they like, they're rock stars, right? It's because the market appreciated, it didn't save your butt. I mean, flipping to me is an art and a skill. And in, a, in an up market, anybody can be, you know, look good. But it, in a market like this, this is when you really got to buy right. You got to, you know, manage your rehabs. You know, I've done $2 million flips. I've done, uh, I've bought properties for $9,000. I've been across the board. So just, you know, you learn the pain points and everything. Like out-of-state investing, for example, buying in like Indiana, being far away, trying to manage a, renovation of a property that was built in 1890s it's challenging and you're going to get ripped off and you're going to deal with contractors that are not worth your time because you're trying to save a save a buck and you don't get the right contractors there's always learning lessons like this year i was like hey i haven't bought a property in a while i got married and i got kind of distracted i said i'm going to go out i want to buy a couple rentals so i just like i just tested myself i said you know what let's go find some random markets and buy a fourplex and i did that this year i went and bought pennsylvania in a small market and I figured out how to buy a property completely remote. You know, I used the listing agent to get some boots on the ground and I, and I bought a $90,000 fourplex. Um, but kind of what I've realized is, is that you need too many of these small properties to ever get cash flow, right? Like I would literally need like about 150 about. of these floors. Yeah. yeah. So you got to find what's right for you. Um, you know, I have a friend that had a couple hundred grand dry powder. He went out and bought his four, first short-term rental. He ended up buying, he now owns five in two-year period. He went from zero cash flow to like grossing 50 grand a month, netting probably 22. He just replaced his income in two years. And I just watched him. And I actually gave him the training video to do this course. And I just watched this guy launch. So there's ways to make money. I think you got to pick, pick your food group and really understand the art. Um. Bro, so I did. So Kyle Stanley, I don't know if you got to meet Kyle while you were here, but Kyle started with Airbnb the same time I started at wholesale. And essentially he started a recurring revenue business 
instead of a sales business. And now he has that money coming in no matter what. And then we are, you are slaving away in the wholesale business to make sure that shit like keeps coming in is one thing that like I saw, right? Kyle built it up to like 70 Airbnbs in like a two year span. And does he own them all or is he arbitraging? Arbitraging and he owns probably 10. I mean, still though, he owns 10. Yeah. So, so right. Like <clears throat> we, we, we're fortunate and I, I watched you and we recently met and I was like, the one thing I, I take away from you is you're a really good you put yourself in the right seats, right? You're friends with the right people. You go to the right mastermind groups. You, you know, you provide value to people. So people will share with you. That's what we all have to do as investors yeah. and business owners. And yeah, so <clears throat> it's amazing. So he started that just a few years ago and he's, you know, he's got huge cash flow coming in, you know, so it's, it's amazing yeah. to see these people that do that. So I would say to anybody that's wholesaling, Wholesaling is great because there's, you know, there's limited risk. It's a high volume transactional based business. But if you want to get really wealthy, you have to, you, in the same time, for every four wholesale deals you're doing, you need to be acquiring a one to one rental, right? And also on the short term rentals, there's tax loopholes because it's an active business. You might be able to write off against your earned income by using cost segregation, talk to your CPA. But yes, I would say that my, the one biggest, the biggest mistake I made in my career was being too transactional based and not just buying and holding. Cause if you buy and hold a certain amount of doors over time, you're going to get wealthy. And that's the real key is, is to create enough money. You need enough reoccurring revenue to come in your door. The first step to being financially free is what we call being a hundred percenter. So I'm in a mastermind group called go abundance. It's like a, there's like 800 people in there now. All these guys are, millionaires and there's guys that are you know worth a hundred million dollars in that group um and uh they they f first say the first thing you need to do is add up all your expenses what it costs you to live food fun entertainment all that good stuff whatever that number is let's say it costs you 10 grand a month you need 10 grand a month of of net passive income you, then you're a hundred percenter then you work your way up to 150 percent or 200 percent then you have enough passive income where you're just reinvesting that right exactly. and so I was never a good saver. Uh, I was never a huge earner. I've always done well, but I've never been like just crushing it gross, you know, year end. But what I've done recently, just knowing like, hey, I'm 45 or 44, you know, I did things wrong in, in a lot of ways. I did things right in a lot of ways. But really, it's just that compounding interest, right? Like there's ways now we have it. So like there's there's one group I, I invest in. And you can go in and put like a hundred dollars on in a in a note on a property. They're a hard money lender, but so okay. I have a I just I would I was like all right I'm going to put twenty grand in there and just grow this right. I'm going to add a thousand bucks a month and just put it on ACH and then I can invest in each little note, and and it's your your returns are based on the on the risk of the deal. If it's an A deal, it means it's going to be like an eight and a half percent return, which is much better than putting your money in the bank, right? Uh -huh. And so and then so I do stuff like that now. I'm also um, about to uh, uh, put money into MCA. So like uh, people that fund merchant cash, cash advances, right? Like, so all these business owners okay. always need money. And so your returns are like 20, 30% in those. And you can do the same thing where you can spread your risk across many deals. So I'm starting to build multiple uh, revenue streams and then just auto deduct from your accounts, right? Like forget about that money. I was just looking about all the software I pay for, all the fluff, and I'm not using probably, I could, 
like today, cancel probably about $1,300 of reoccurring monthly expenses. What if I just put that $1,300 a month into these income streams that I'm compounding at 8, 10, 15%, right? And just forget about it and just keep it, let it work. Let your money be your employees. And so going back to what you were saying, you're exactly right. Being transactional based, it's great. You can crush it and make tons of money, but then you're in the highest tax bracket. You're, you're paying a bunch of taxes. You need, you need to be acquiring a few properties a year, in my opinion, and, and putting money together and being creative, like be creative. Like maybe you can, you know, your buddy that does self storage or whatever, right? Like you can, you can piggyback off people and build, yep. you can raise money for deals. If you do it legally the right way with the syndications mm -hmm. and do a fund of fun or what all these things, learn these strategies and then build multiple revenue streams. Like you should have seven, eight streams of income between your rental properties and, you know, your investments and notes and that kind of stuff. So, so that's the way I look at it. How did you get past um, this whole thing mentally? Because I mean, that's a struggle in and of itself, dude. Oh yeah, I, like, I still coming I still, out of the downturn. I still haven't got through it completely, to be honest with you. Um, I still have a, a catalytic converter that kind of governs the engine, so I can't, you know, step on the gas one hundred percent. And that's okay. been kind of my downfall. And so <clears throat> I just recently hired a performance coach, uh, a business and performance coach. And I never had a business performance coach before. So I meet with them every week and um, we, we've opened up and just like, you know, that's why I look at some people that never saw, you know, never had any downturns or any, any bad things happen in, in business. And they've only just, everything just turns to gold. And maybe they'll be the lucky ones that doesn't have shit hit the fans and like they can work through things. But it was very humbling for me. I mean, it was like, I thought I was going to be this millionaire in my 20s, right? And then uh, mm -hmm. all this happened. So I constantly work on myself and uh, my, my, you know, your limiting beliefs. I always, I told my coach this story in eighth grade, I was, I wrestled and I could have been a really good wrestler and I beat everyone that year. I wrestled, I just was dominating everyone. And then there was another guy from the, our competing schools and he had the reputation of like just being a badass, right? And I was intimidated and I went up against this guy. He like picked me up and cradled me and like slammed me, pinned me in like, like literally 60 seconds. And that's still in the back of my mind. And that was eighth grade. That's still in the back of my mind. Like I should have. And I always tell myself if I wasn't intimidated, maybe I would have still lost, but he, there's no way he would have pinned me in 60 seconds. Yeah. Right. Like I beat myself. So a lot of the things we deal with is, is mindset. And so that's why I pay a coach a couple hundred dollars per session. And I do it weekly, right? So I'm investing heavily, what I think is a, a lot of money for a coach, but I see the rewards. And I, I was fortunate enough to get a coach that has coached like Super Bowl um, coaches that have won Super Bowls. And he's coached yeah. like professional bands. Like you would know the names. Like this guy is like an old an older guy, but he's a really, really good coach. And he's he's really helping me like, you know, kind of kind of remove like I always, I always tell people I'm always like a 90 percenter, right? Like I never, I, I, I always go to 90, anything I can, I do, I'm like a 90 percenter. If I ever just left, let the chains off, I could be a, like Excel so much, right? Like I know yeah. I have the skills that many don't have and people come to me cause they, I always solve people's problems, right? Like my friends, like this guy I was telling you about just did the Airbnb business and I got him in the, Hey, do this next, do this next. 
And so I needed to start taking that advice for myself. And sometimes it's easier to give people advice because you can see it. So um, I had to work my way through it. And it was, it was, it was, it's always there. And I don't think it will never not be there because you're like, oh, like when you feel that pain, I'm one of those people that like holds it in, right? Like that was painful for me. It was like, yeah. even though it's at the end of the day, it's really not that big of a deal. Like there's a lot of people that like have gone bankrupt 10 times and, and they're multimillionaires. Right. But that was humbling. And if, if I look at why I haven't reached greatness or what I perceive as greatness is because my limiting beliefs. Right. And so that's why you hire a coach and you get mentors. And even if you, even if you're at a high level right now, the Michael Jordans of the world, they all have coaches. They all have coaches. So you're foolish not to get a coach. You're foolish not to, um, to like use the strategy of the book, who, not how it's not about yep. like knowing everything. It's just who the who's in this room that can help me. Right. And then it's being a connector, putting the connections together and seeing things through. And so that's kind of the mindset. And that's what, that's the approach I use with the lending business is, is that, when people call me, it's like, I'm like five steps ahead of them. I'm, I don't just think about this transaction. I'm like thinking about their best, like what makes sense for them five steps from now, not just today, not to just make a commission. Cause that's not my objective. It's just to, you know, sure. We all like to make money, but at the end of the day, I want to mm -hmm. sleep at night. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I take things personally and I want to get things done for these, these people out there that, you know, and it, it is also awesome to see people go from like their first rental property. Now they have 10 or 15 or 20, or I help them go from owning like four rental properties. And then they, they find their first like 30 unit building multifamily and I help them close on it or I help business owners like buy their, like this guy, I just helped buy his, his dream was to start this car dealership. And I just arranged $4 million in financing. That's freaking humbling. That's, that's, that's yeah. why, that's why I do it. That's why I started my meetup group. Like people, this, when I, before I came to um, Zuber's event, the week before our event, I, I threw a meetup in the Bay Area where I used to have all my, I have a real estate investor mm -hmm. club called Thrive REIA. And I, and I had a meetup and uh, this, this kid came up to me and he said, he said, man, I came to your meetup a couple of years ago and I met, he met my other buddy, Mike. He said, I met, I met Mike at your meetup and it literally changed my life. He said, I, cause this, this kid was a, a new realtor at the time. He said, Mike and I linked up. I, I help him buy all his deals. I help him sell all his deals. I made thousands and thousands of dollars in commissions. I hear that story over and over again. And then like the, to me, that's so humbling. Cause that's, that's, yep. that's been a reoccurring thing in my life that I've helped a lot of people, a lot of people. And that, that feels good. That's why I do it. Well, I love it. Um, two things and they're two completely different things. Explain when you learned, like, man, buying these out-of-state properties for dirt cheap, it is going to take me so many fucking houses in order for it to make sense. Because I remember us going out to South Bend, and I was like, bro, we are going to have to buy so many houses. Us getting in, I'd love to talk about the funding with it, too. I was like, man, getting the funding on these bitches is going to be hard. Yeah. Like, so the whole thing was just a pain. And I was like, eh, we'd rather do storage, and then now we have a storage facility locked up. But it took two fucking years. Yeah, I mean, you got to... So I don't think it's a bad idea to buy, you know, small properties. Like I was, ex when I started buying six years ago in Indiana, I mean, I bought a ton of, you know, a ton of properties. I, I, I sold some of them, but you know, I bought an, I bought a fourplex for 
36 grand. I put in 20 grand and it rents out right. for, you know, 2,300 a month and it's worth 140 now. So like I've done really well, but at the end of the day, when you're buying an olding, older housing stock, even if you do a little bit of a rehab or complete rehab, there's always problems. There's always maintenance issues. So you, your real cash flow, the time you pay all your expenses is, is insignificant, I would say, unless you own a ton of them. And so um, where I see it's beneficial is that it's easy entry. It's relatively safe. Um, and over time, they do go up in value. Um, so it's a, like it's a slow way of getting wealthy and or creating a little bit of wealth, at least, I would say, a little bit of wealth. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, like, if you were more strategic, you could go and say, joint venture on a self-storage facility that's got 200 units and raise a little bit of capital exactly. on your end and then get some JV money. And you could probably, instead of owning those 20 doors, you could probably own one self-storage and get the same amount of cash flow, right? So yeah, <clears throat> I think, um, like my multifamily syndicator buddies, right? Like they... They go out and they do a deal. They get acquisition fees. They get all these fees when you do a syndication. So my friend, like I've been to lunch with him on two occasions that I can specifically remember. And he's like, he had seven figure days when he bought the property. When he bought the property with his fees that he gets, he, he made seven figures. So like, it makes more sense to do bigger deals. And there's no, there's no real difference. It's almost easier to do bigger deals because you can have professional managers and, and not these run-of-the-mill yep. property managers. But also, I think to each his own, everybody has a little bit different strategy. Some people just would be fine with, you know, a couple grand a month of cash flow. But, you know, uh, I think if, if we want to replace our day jobs, then we got to think bigger. We got to think bigger. But it's okay to hit a couple of singles and base hits on these smaller deals. Mm -hmm. I'll still buy smaller deals. Um, but now I'm thinking more revenue streams. Like, you know, I have some dry powder. So going into and buying into like a marina or, or whatever, these businesses where I'm not the operator and yeah. I, can put, I can put a little bit of money to work, that to me makes more sense because I don't want to keep on having more jobs. I work enough but I want to be strategic. So like on the self storage, let's just say, let's just say you don't like, you probably don't, I don't want to be the operator, right? Who's going to manage, who's going to be the, like the, the asset manager of the property manager. What's my role. I think in that situation, I would like to find the deal maybe and put the pieces together with the financing and the, and the equity, and then have somebody that's got the skill sets to operate it. Right. And then, I'm on the I'm on the monthly calls and getting the statements and figuring out what's going on with the property. Because it's about time freedom too. Yeah, we can't just keep on buying, getting new jobs. Like that's not the point of life. Like I've I work hard and I don't want to keep on. The goal isn't to keep working, you know, 10, 12 hour days. It's to you know have have a balanced life and and also if you're too busy in the day to day, you can't you can't work on the real gifts that we have, right? Like putting on events and, and doing that kind of stuff and, and having that balance. Like, I don't, I don't want to be stuck at my desk servicing different problems. 100%. Um, where did you get the financing for those little ones for the people who are buying stuff? So the best way to finance stuff under, so 
if the property like 50. Yeah, if the property values are under like 75 grand, it's going to be really hard. You can get sometimes local mom and pop funds to fund those type of deals. But what the biggest way to fund those deals is, is, is um, there's like trillions of dollars of retirement funds. So you get people with that have self-directed IRAs and they okay. become Bank of America. So, for example, I got a lead on my investor carrot website and this was, about, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And uh, I negotiated the price. It kind of sounds funny because the price was so low back then. It was like $22,000. And I needed $14,000 to renovate it, right? So I needed thirty four grand. So I, what I do is I pick up the phone, I build an, you know, and I call my friend Adam. Adam's got a couple million bucks. Hey, Adam, I need you to be the bank. I need, you'll get a first lien on the property. I need a loan for $34,000. Let's do a 24-month term. It gives me time to fix the property, put tenants in, and refinance out with the portfolio lender. So when you're buying these, you use other people's money on the purchase side. Yeah. And then, then you want to make sure when the stabilized, the, the ARV, typically is at least uh, 85000 or greater because then you can get a DSCR loan for those small loans. And then you can also package three or four. So that's what I did essentially. Okay. So we bought tons of houses like that. And, and I, you know, the, the fourplex I just bought, I just got a DSCR loan, right? I put down 30 grand and got a $60,000, $64,000 loan or something like that. Uh, you know, so you can get DSCR loans for acquisitions that are hundred grand. Um, but, but you try to keep the purchase price at least minimum 75. Square footage needs to be 700 square feet or larger for single family homes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I did. It's easy. DSCR loans are super easy. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you, that's yeah. Cool. So if it's a bigger purchase price, like if you're buying, you can do a fix and flip loan and then you just re, then you burr yeah. out of it with a DSCR loan. Real simple. And you can, you could structure these bridge loans to be two years with some lenders. And I always suggest, you know, you pay a little bit higher rate, but who cares? Because then you're not rushed to refinance and you can have, you have time. Yeah. I mean, on an $80,000 loan, the difference in a quarter point isn't going to crush you. I totally agree. Why? So I've never got an SBA loan. I have only ever heard that SBA loans are like anal probes. Why is yeah. that? Well, I mean, did you just say they are? The, I mean, in a, in a way, they are. So um, they're full doc loans. So, but SBA loans are like the most vers versatile loans there are. And like 70, 80% of all businesses have SBA financing. It's partially guaranteed by the, the government, right? So yeah, they're meant for small businesses. And then you can really take advantage of like the leverage of it. Like this deal that I might invest in, we're getting like 85% financing. We're going to have the seller carry back 10%. Wait, is that right? Yeah. So, and then we're coming in with 5%. I'm coming, you know, the partners are coming in with 5% of a $2.4 million total project cost. Simple. And, and that money can come from an investor. Like I'm, I'm going to own less than 20%. I don't have to go on the loan. So you can do this for self storage. You can only have 5 million of allocation for SBA. So this, you know, this guy is going to have 2.2. Yeah. Unless there's a little secret called the SBA 504 green. So let's just say you and I are buying our self storage facility and you already have four and a half million dollars on your other self storage. We buy this self-storage facility. We get an engineer that goes out there and they says, okay, if you put solar on this, you'll, you'll reduce energy by X. There's certain benchmarks. If you do that, 
You can collectively have up to 16 and a half million in SBA financing, which is essentially like 38, 40 million dollars of total buying power. Most people don't know that, but so anyways, I know all these secrets because four years ago, I didn't know anything about SBA financing. I wanted to. And so I just, I educated myself. I interviewed people for my podcast. I, I ended up writing an ebook on SBA financing. I'm still not an expert. I joined the National Association of Guaranteed Lenders, which is all bankers and me, because you know why I wanted to learn because yeah. it's so powerful. You can do business acquisition with no real estate. So like if you wanted to, you could do franchise financing. So if you wanted to buy an existing franchise that was approved on the SBA directory, I mean, it, you're foolish for not using SBA if you can, but it is a full doc loan. So you gotta have, you know, your global cash flow has to be good. If you have a lot of business entities, like I have a, I have a guy right now I'm doing a, he's a builder. I'm doing a two, uh, we can get up to a $5 million revolving line of credit so he can build houses. Uh -huh. And there's an SBA product for it. It's called a cap line. So, but the problem is, is he's got a lot of different entities, entities and you have to provide all your tax returns. So those type of people have a problem with it because it's just a lot of paperwork. Yeah. But if you're organized, it's such, it's such a tool. Like I, I know over the next five years, I'm going to help so many people become wealthy through business acquisition. And right now you're, you're seeing a lot of investors that go, Hey, I like real estate, but I want to own a business too. I want to own a laundromat. I want cash flow. I want to buy this yeah. boutique boat. I want to buy this uh, boutique motel and convert it to a, uh, you know, use my skills that I'm running these three or four Airbnbs, but I'm going to buy this 10 unit cap, this cabin that's got 10 cabins on it or this motel. And I'm going to use SBA financing and leverage and I'm going to get some smaller um, uh, minority owners of that project, right? Like you can be really strategic if you, if you position yourself and, that could be the game changer, right? Like I just watched this guy in Tahoe and he bought a couple small hotels there, uh, uh, motels, and he like rebranded them. This guy's making so much cash flow now. I mean, and so that's, that's why I love the SBA because it's such a good tool that we should all look at, like on your self storage. Now, granted, if you're partnered with some, like the guy you introduced me to the past weekend, like he's a big operator, SBA is probably not good for him. But for me, like, let's say I'm going out and I find a 200, 300 unit self storage and I, uh -huh. I could buy it for 2 million bucks. I go get SBA financing, put the money together. I could get gifted the down payment. I could have the seller carry back a portion of it. You can be super creative and get the highest leverage possible. It's like a no brainer putting these deals together. Um, do you get really, really good interest rates? Like, do they never go above like 4%? No, they no, they're the terrible right rates? now. Okay. So, so the SBA 7A, is tied to the Wall Street Journal Prime. And most lenders are variable rate, meaning it's gonna adjust quarterly. So on an adjustable rate mortgage, you always have your index, which is the Wall Street Journal Prime. And then you have a margin, which is basically what the bar, uh, bank makes, right? It makes a margin, mm -hmm. you add those together, that's your fully indexed rate. And right now that that's like in the high nines on those loans right now. What? But But here's the thing. If you ever flipped a property, did you ever pay a hard money lender like or an equity partner like 30, 50% of the deal or whatever, right? Yeah, I guess so. If you price in the, the interest rate, who cares? If the thing's still cash flowing 50 grand a month, it's still or, cash flows, it's right. still cash flows. And, and at the end of the day, after this recession, they're going to have to, they're going to, they're overcorrecting, right? Every t everything is always an overcorrection. And then they're going to drop rates down again. I mean, it's not, we're probably not going to get 2.65, 30 year fixed rates again, but, we get back into the low fives or the high fours eventually 
then these rates will come down. So as long as you're like got the expectation that you're pricing in the cost of capital, it's just a, it's just a line item, right? Like that's what it costs for the this two million dollar loan. Does this deal pencil out still? Even if rates go yeah. up, you know, stress test the deal. Does it work? Is it, or does so it, is it like an arm too? So like they can raise it on me in two years if I bought it. It can. That's it can like my biggest fear. It can adjust quarterly, yeah. So every quarter you could go up a certain percentage. It has certain caps on it. So yeah, I mean, it could jump up. So I mean, is there a little bit of risk to these adjustable rate? Yeah, I mean, you're you're pricing in the risk, right? You're pricing like, hey, I can get the rate at nine and a half today or whatever, nine percent, whatever the rate is, fully indexed. Let, let's stress test it. What if the what if this rate went to eleven percent, right? It, does this thing still spit out a lot of cash flow? Mm-hmm. it's the same thing when you're buying anything multifamily it's currently at 95 percent occupancy well what happens if the occupancy level drops to 80 do we still cash flow right like some ridiculous thing happens well it's okay i i want to stress that's everything now airbnb oh well air dna says we're running 90 90 occupancy on this property well did the numbers still work if it goes to like 65 or 70 percent what's your break even then right like and so if you yeah. do that you're kind of you know what your risk factors are and at the end of the day that's i went into deals all the time pay, paying expensive money but i factored my risk like on flips right i didn't have the down payment i needed some equity i have a friend to this day he never puts money in deals on flips he's just a flipper he always yep. just does a profit share agreement for the down payment. So he gets a hard money loan first for like 80 or 90% and then he, the rehab. Well, he needs the 10 or 15% down plus the carrying cost. He goes and does it for that 100 grand or wherever that is. He does a, a joint venture profit share agreement, pays them 30% of whatever the net profit is. And he, and he probably has like a bunch of money in his bank and he, he just prefers to do it that way. So yeah. you got to get what, what works for you and you got to, you can't, there are fixed rate options for some of these like real estate SBA 7A loans. Now the 504 is a different SBA product and that's a fixed rate. It's two loans though. It's a, it's a regular bank loan. And the second is actually the SBA piece. So it's the SBA 7A is just one loan. The 504 is two separate loans, a conventional and an SBA together. Did you ever go look into that bolt loan? Uh, no, but I, I have it on my, it's on my phone. I'm going to look at that. The boat loan looks like it's like, it looks basically like it's an SBA express loan for like 150,000 or less loan amounts. I'll, I will yeah. research it though. Yeah. Yeah. So there are exactly. like different. You can get it in like two weeks. Yeah. Oh, I was but... talking to a guy about it the other day. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. And I they mean, said it was less anal proby as well. Yeah. They, for like these express loans. And different if loans are under 350 it's less probing they use like an algorithm to like an sba algorithm to figure it out but it's usually the loans that are 500,000 greater that's going to be a little bit more proby but i mean most of the people that are going for these loans are pretty detail oriented they you know they're going to have their tax returns we always need when you're buying an existing business you always need three years of the seller's tax return so if i'm buying a self-storage facility but you can do projection based so let's just say the prop, the the self storage was mom and pop owned, it and they just gave up on it and getting ready to retire, and it's fifty percent occupancy. We can do a projection, I put together projections, and we can get financing based on the projection of the cash flows. So it doesn't have to be okay. in place. So there's lots of ways of doing it. On business acquisition for cash flowing businesses, you can get up to ninety percent financing. On startups, it's usually eighty to eighty five percent. 
and you can have the seller carry back. Uh, so on a business acquisition, let's just say you have a laundromat and I'm buying it from you. Just the, just the business itself, not the real estate. You get, it's cash flowing. I can get 90% of the total cost. All the fees are wrapped in. I can also build in working capital and employees compensation for the first couple of months. So when I roll into this business, I'm capitalized. SBA is really good, man. Like you can't beat the financing. And then, so I need 10% equity injection. So I'm buying this for a million dollars. I still need to come up with a hundred grand. Well, I can have the seller take 5% of that and, and leave 5% of equity in the deal. He has to leave it on standby. Can they carry the whole thing? He can carry up. Um, they, they need 5% from you. Okay. They need 10 okay. total. So when I tell you 5% needs to be on standby, that means the seller can't get payments on that 5% that's on standby. He's leaving 5% equity in. That could accrue interest, but that's like he's leaving it in the deal. So what we often do is we often get on the phone with the sellers and like help structure these deals. Because the sellers at the end of the day, we, we, we make it a win-win for them. So yeah. there's... I guess the point is there's all these things that 5% you have to bring in for the laundromat. That could be a gift from your family member. It could be a gift from her friend. And so you can be ultra creative on how that it could be. An, um, it could be a partner that has less than 20% that comes in with that 5%. Really? Yeah. And so, but my max on these, I couldn't have like a private equity fund with all SBA money essentially, right? Like I couldn't have like 30 million of SBA money out. And get well, really good at doing those and start rolling shit up. Well, I mean, if there was real estate involved, you could do the 504 green program and have up to 16 and a half million of just SBA, which is like seriously like 35 million. But if you're like trying to do a roll up, yeah, you would. So I'm in the process of starting a group that funds. So an invest. Somebody comes to me, they see my podcast and they, I'm talking about SBA. They book a call. They say, Hey, I want to buy this X, this, this, this hardware store or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. The only problem is I, it's a great deal. It's been in business for 50 years. It's cash flow in bunch. The guy's retiring. I don't have the 300 grand I need for the equity injection. I'm starting yep. a group that actually funds part portion equity. of these, this equity. Right. And we could do that on limited times. So I could really go out and have a, a partial ownership of a hundred different businesses. And the, the majority of the leverage is coming from the loan, right? So like, yeah, I can't think of a better way to get a return. Now, the hardest part is that that person, the person that's going for the loan and is going to be the operator. You have to pick the right operators because it could be the best business in the world. But if it gets in the hands of somebody that doesn't know how to run a business, we're, we're all screwed. Yep. But but creative financing, everybody says, oh, you can't do 100% financing. I do. I bought and sold so many properties using 100% financing, right? I mean, it's all creativity. We, you know, we just were at the conference and we heard Pace talking about how he walks into these deals with no money and tons of cash flow. I mean, there's, it's just, that's the beauty of real estate. You can be ultra creative. Yeah, that is so cool. That's why I wanted to have you on because I wanted to <laughs> essentially pick your brain on these loans. Um. So we can do that. What other types of, what do you lean into more now? Like, what are you seeing? Are the lending criteria getting tighter? Are they like, yeah, the market's come to shit. What's that look like? So my, my predictions are that 
I mean, all su- yeah, all of a sudden, these big national funds have come into the play, right? Like, there's all these big lenders. They fund billions of dollars a year in these non-QM and fix and flip loans. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that they're all selling their loans in the secondary market. So, like, when COVID happened, for example, all these funds just stopped lending for, like, a couple of weeks. And there's no – that's going to – the guidelines are going to get – gonna get tight at some point. I don't know when, I would say in the next six months. So my, what I suggest to everybody is you need to know who's out there lending, not just these national funds that might have the best rates today because they might be gone yeah. tomorrow. And that's that. like people come to me because I have like, I go to the trade associations where there's like the, the funds that have been around like family owned funds and they have like a hundred million dollars and like, they're not, they like just lend. In, yeah. They lend yeah. in specific markets. They don't lend actually. So deal comes in. If it's a multifamily deal value add, I got my fund. I bring it to, they'll do 85% of purchase, 85% of repair costs subject to the, you know, the guidelines of the stabilized value. So I have, I'm like a human directory here. And then I'll give you an example of the other skill, the other stuff we do. So there's something called agency debt, and this is for multifamily. So it's for small balance agencies, it's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And so let's just say I only own a couple single family homes and I'm going to buy a 20 unit apartment complex. I can't get SB, I, excuse me, I can't get agency debt because I don't have experience operating multifamily, five units and above. You need experience, you need a net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount, and you need a certain amount of post-closed liquidity. Now I can bring on a team member, team member that's a code general partner in the deal that has those experiences and that net worth maybe. So that's why you see a lot of teaming up in, in multifamily. But my friend, John, he found a property in Knoxville, Tennessee, and him and his dad and his business partner, none of them own multifamily. And so it's like, well, we're not gonna get agencies that. So what the other services I do is, is what I call bank and credit union placement. So I went out and found a local credit union and we got 80% financing on this million two acquisition, better than better than a agency debt, debt. capital-wise. So I work with a lot of national and, and local credit unions and, and regional banks. So I, I, I came up with a system of how to, you know, when I get a certain deal in a certain market, how to find these deals. Like, for example, I have a deal in like New Mexico right now. And it's like, I don't have a local bank, but I have a system that identifies the right banks for me that I kind of put in place. So using my VAs. So I'm able to do stuff outside oh. the box. Right. And I know how to approach. I have a system for approaching these bankers. Cause like, unfortunately these small banks, they don't really know how to market. Right. They just sit there yep. and they wait for a customer to come in. They don't understand that. Like there's people looking for them. They're not very good marketers, but so that's, that's what I do. I do, you know, I can find the needle in the haystack if I want to all the time. Sometimes I don't have the energy to do it all the time, but, I had, a, I had a first time uh, borrower. She owned a couple, like she owned like one or two single family homes. She found this mixed use property in this small town, like outside of Cincinnati, Cincinnati Ohio is on the Kentucky side. I found her a bank. I was, I was even su- surprised in the terms I got her. So it's, it's, everything's doable. It's just how you present it and how you talk to the bankers, but you can get any type of deal done. Like I have banks in California's, in California that like they're okay lending on strip clubs. There's no other banks that I know of that are okay lending on strip clubs. Now they only lend in California. So if I ever get up the next day, I happen to get a call 
for a, from a guy that has a commercial building and in the, in one of the spaces, he's got a adult bookstore, so he couldn't get bank financing. So boom, now I know I got to call this bank cause they'll do it. Cause they don't care if it's a strip club or yeah, an adult bookstore. Off money. So yeah, yeah there, there, there's a fit for everything. It's just, there's thousands of lending institutions out there and you'll never find them. So it's just about going out and meeting the right connections. It's the same thing for wholesaling or whatever, like, you know, or if you're a flipper, you know, putting yourself in the right rooms where you get the wholesalers that have the sweet deals that like, you know, a good wholesaler, what do they do? They give you an alley-oop, right? They're throwing the basketball up and just, you come in and slam. There's the prices. Right. Yeah, and you yeah. just can go yeah. in, you can slam up. And I think a good wholesaler leaves meat on the bones. It's not, it's just not me, me, me. It's like, Hey, you know, Hey, I get it. Like, even like Ty, uh, if you ask Ty, who is the best person you ever sold deals to, Ty would say Bo. He used to, he, you know, I was, I bought like three in a row from him. He's like, man, you're like the easiest person to work with, right? Like, cause I knew Ty could get deals and he's a good investor agent. And, you know, I performed on every one quickly because that's what a good empire does or, or fix yep. a flipper. And so, Building those relationships is key. It's the same thing in lending, like being, you know, being friends. Like I go to the conferences and I, I meet all the SBA lenders and I, you know, figure out what their appetite is, who likes to do what type of SBA deals. Cause everybody's got their own appetite and their own overlays on these banks. So you just got to know how to position all this stuff. Bro, how am I just finding out about you? That's fucking powerful. Yeah. Because how did you meet Zuber? So, you know, and here it goes back. It's funny. So there was a guy. Um, so Zuber, um, I met Zuber and we live, we only used to live about 30 minutes apart or 40 minutes apart. So I met Zuber through my friend, Jim Ingersoll, who's a big real estate investor in Virginia. Yeah. And uh, I was at a, one of Jim's conferences in Virginia and Zuber spoke. I don't know how Zuber met Jim, but anyway, I, I met Zuber there and I had Zuber speak at my meetup. That's where Zuber met Ty through my event. And then Ty introduced him to Adrian and Omar. And now those are wow. guys are all on his show. And then like, also like, I just, um, I had like uh, a guy named Neil Bawa. He's a big multifamily guy. He's just like a data geek. Um, and I, would, like I just- He has a meetup out in the Bay, right? I think yeah. that's a part of his meetup. Yeah. yeah, I think he's done, he's done close to a, like 800 million in, syndications but um it was funny i was i talked to him i had him speak at one of my meetups years and years ago and, and then i just re i interviewed him again just on the market because he just studies data and he's pretty knowledgeable in that space and then before we started he's like bo he's like i just want to let you know like like i when i got to speak at your event that was before i even like that really like helped me take off i forgot how he said it but it was like it's kind of amazing yeah. that these guys got their start almost not, not that I was like the reason they became who they are, but I was a part of their journey in the beginning and, and to see these guys blow up is amazing. And so that's the power of networking and these meetups. And like, if you do them right. And that, and so co I moved away, I got married, COVID happened. And I stopped doing meetups. And then I, you know, obviously I don't live in the Bay Area. And then I just had my event and it was, you know, it's not a big space, but our the space was completely packed. The energy level was amazing. And I'm like, man, this is cool. Like I forgot. Then I yeah. went to Zuber's event and I went to our event here at our, you know, 
where you guys you guys have a huge following. It was amazing to see how you guys packed that. And and um, what you what you realize is is that when we when we got when we were talking about collaboration and you really saw it, a lot of the guys that I was listening to you, including yourself on stage, we talk about like other people's vibrations, right? Like you need that. Yeah. And what I realized is I need to be around that vibration, that energy of people that are going places, right? Like in people that are honest about, you know, deals, listen to Jason's story, right? Like how he got into that predicament and like in 10 years time, he sounds like he's doing very well, you know, owns a bunch of real estate and flips a lot and sells a lot of real estate. And he's not and, uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. <laughs> like, but you have to get, I think we all need to get ourselves into the right, the right places and keep our minds open and, and, and work on our weaknesses. We all have weaknesses of whatever they are. We all have certain limiting beliefs. Working on that is really going to be the most impactful. Like even today, like as I sit here, I'm thinking, God, like what, like all these opportunities that I kind of didn't jump on because of that, those limiting beliefs and that kind of like that fear of like, oh my God, like when my friend Eric went and bought this property in, in Phoenix for 520, I was looking at it. I'm like, man, that's, property's not worth 520 he bought it right before covid now that thing appraises out at like 830 now granted it might go down a little bit but right now it's probably down again yeah the point is is he's cash flowing five or six grand a month and he got he he has 30 year fixed debt on that at three percent so he's that guy just crushed it so i think like in an up down or whatever market it's really just like what's the long-term play don't put yourself in a compromising situation like if you're flipping it, like if you're a, here's where the, the mistakes really come from funding millions and millions of dollars of deals. Somebody gets out there and he, they flip their first one or two houses and they, they crush it. And then all of a sudden they go out and get five or six at a time and they can't possibly have the systems in place. Yeah. They just aren't built for it yet. Yeah. I, I have a friend. He was like, when I, we all used to work at this mortgage company called Diablo Funding Group, which in Spanish means the devil, but it was, we lived by Mount Diablo in the Bay Area. And this guy was a top producer out of like 800 loan agents. I mean, he was crushing it back then. And then all of a sudden, I, met, I, I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I met back up with him, and he decided to become a real estate developer. Well, this numbskull partnered with this guy, and he's my friend to this day. I still try to help him, but... He partnered with a guy who ended up embezzling a bunch of money. And anyways, every project they did, they got foreclosed on. He ended up getting divorced. He got cancer. Um, and like his life just went to hell because he, he, he's really good. If, if somebody would have just said, hey, dude, don't do 20 projects. Focus on one. Get it done and make your money and do it slowly. But this guy was just like. So I can take guys like that, I think, and help them if they would listen and just be like, listen, just do this project. You're really good at, he's a, he's such a good salesperson, but he just didn't have the skill sets. So, you know, don't go hard when, when the time's right, but don't force that, that push. I mean, that's just the, the, the goal. Like there's that happy sweet spot of not over leveraging yourself because there's nothing worse than having severe financial stress. There's nothing worse waking up in the middle of the night going, man, I got to pay like X amount of bills and debt service this month, like from the hard money loans, like, and I don't have the reserves. Like, that's not a way to live. You're going to kill yourself that way. I can guarantee that. That's not the way to live. When the downturn happened in 2007, I remember 
this this loan officer that worked at our company, another guy that worked at Diablo Funding, I think. But the downturn happened and he was over leveraged and like he was used to making like huge money every month. He he killed himself, right? Like because he couldn't I know deal with who did too. He was building spec homes and he killed himself. Yeah. He so friend's dad. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens. And so we live in a high stress world. What we do, especially when there's lots of money on the line and it's, and you're like, but it's not worth it. I feel like setting yourself up and having reserves and then, you know, sharing the deal, maybe you bring in a money partner that's well capitalized and you share the profits as opposed to, you know, charging up your credit cards. The other thing I did in the beginning, which is important, let me just talk about this. I think it'd be good for your viewers. Um, understand the credit game. Um, I was young and dumb and I, I found one of those kind of the credit card stacking companies. Not that they're bad, but the problem is, is they go out and they apply and get all these, these personal credit cards in your name. I got, you know, I got like $130,000 of credit cards. And then I was like, started, I had a bunch of flips going. So I charged all the credit cards up. My score went from a 700 to a, a 560 and I never missed a payment. Then you get trapped because you ruin your personal credit score. So what we do, and kind of what I teach people through learning from others, I'm not going to say this is my idea, but we, you create a, a qualified, what we call a qualified funding entity, an, an entity, you build all your credit in that, you use that, and you don't use personal credit because it's in your business's name, it, yeah. your trade lines. You work on just keeping your credit perfect, as perfect as you can. You know, no, like your name is your legal name. If you don't have like, because my legal name is Nothing not Bo, Bo is my middle name. Your address yeah. is correct. Everything matches up. Because a lot of the credit, like at these banks, like they'll routinely, like through their algorithms, they'll go, oh, this guy's ready. He's got 50 grand in his bank. He's depositing 10 grand a month. He always keeps $50,000 balance. So it automatically triggers like credit increases or offers for $50,000 lines of business credit. So I've, that's what I've, I have a bunch of entities now and I have tons of business credit all over the place. And I continue to grow those. So whenever I need money, I'm going to use these business credit cards and not my personal. And I'm going to just use my personal just a little bit. So they, you know, if you don't use them, it's bad. You got to use a little bit, charge them up like five or 6% on utilization, pay them off, do that, this and that. And then I use my one business credit card, the main card a lot, and they just keep on upping my balances. Like, so you got to learn the credit game and utilize that to your advantage because you never know when you need that 50 grand and, or 60 grand or a hundred grand you have it and you're not using your personal credit, which is, it's all 30% of your score is utilization. So yeah. you, like this is the, if I had a son right now, this is what I'd be teaching him. Okay. We're going to get your credit card at, as soon as we can. We're going to like pay it off. We're going to build your credit. We're going to then open a business account for you. We're going to stack, right? And you keep on stacking these wins. Now you have a fortress around you. Even if you don't have a ton of money yet, you start stacking your, a little bit of every every flip you do, every wholesale deal, deal you do, you take 20% you put it in a couple of your do not touch funds, right? So you always live with, if, you, if you're sitting with 200 grand in your bank account, you feel like you have nothing to do, like you have no worries in the world. You become soft. You don't push yourself. You have to push yourself, man. You have to, you have to be poor. You have to live with like no money in your bank. Like Grant Cardone talks about this all the time. Like that, he talks yeah, about it all the time. Yeah. Like he get it out of your account. That's why these, the, like I never did this before, but the automatic deducts that go into different accounts, like ACH is out yeah. of your account. 
like you won't miss a thousand bucks. I, I waste a thousand bucks here and there, like just get it out. And so, and then anything that you're not using, get rid of, take that $300 software a month that you're not using that goes into a different account before you know it, you saved up 30 grand in that account. That's, a, that's your down payment on your fourplex or your duplex or whatever, right? Like you just acquired a new property. You, you acquire, if you just acquire, you're 27 years old. If you just acquire one rental property a year for the next 10 years, that's all you really need to do. And you'll be financially set. Yeah. I mean, it's, we don't, you don't have to go a million miles an hour if you don't want to. Now, some of us are driven more than others. And if you're driven, it's a blessing and a curse. Because we're never like, you know, we always want to do more. Exactly. So like I look at my dad, my dad is, I always get pissed off at him because he's like, he's not driven, right? And I, like I had like deep down anger for my dad because he's not driven. I always, I always, I told this to my, my, my coach. I'm like, he just like, I love my dad, but he's just like not driven. And then finally I got at peace with it. Like not everybody needs to be a bow and be driven. Exactly. And, like, and not everybody needs to work like I work. And not everybody needs to get up at four in the morning like I do. Because my way is not the best way, that's for sure. But all in all, I would say if you're disciplined, just being disciplined with whatever you do is just the start. Like I like what Dean said. He's Dean's like, Dean said, I don't get I don't get start my day till nine o'clock in the morning. I was watching Ryan Pineda or something on it. He doesn't get into the office till 10 and he's ultra successful. So doesn't mean you have to do the 4 a.m. the miracle morning with Hal Elrod. Hell, Elrod. That's the way I chose to, to kind of live, and that's the way I'm wired. It's pretty good. I, yeah. I think it's pretty good. I think Miracle Morning is pretty good. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I just like waking up and going to the gym. I tried waking up and um, just working, but like for me, I'd say the hardest part of my day is getting to the gym, and I want to get it over with. And so that's what I'd kill first. Yeah, you win the day. You win the day if you go to the gym first, right? Like, all right, I I get all the stress out. I crush the gym. I work out really hard. I, my wife is like, dude, cause I take my wife to the gym and she's like, you're always angry in the morning. I go, no, oh, it's just the way I am. I just, that's, I go to the gym and I'm like, I don't, I, I want to demons. Yeah. I want to like, that's just the way you, you know, that's just the way you're wired, but it's an ongoing for me. It's ongoing uh, journey to improve and I'll never not try to improve myself, whether it's in the gym or whether it's like studying. I'm constantly studying. I might over, I might, one thing I learned with my coach is that, or we discuss is that like, I always have to be, become an expert in anything I do before I do mm -hmm. it. And he's like, that's no good. Like I would rather be able to shoot from my hip a little bit more. Like I've taken so, I didn't go to college, but I've taken so many classes. I have a, like, like such a grasp of all these different topics. I, you know, I'm like the type of person I went to, um, uh, I got the itch to become a mediator when I was younger in my uh, early thirties where you like mediate so they don't have to go to court. They mediate the, really? the so I volunteered for a community uh, association and they trained me, took me through their course on how to become a mediator. And then I would do uh, community disputes and like, you know, a husband and wife dispute or something. And then I did, uh, and then I did a small uh, claims court practicum where I went and, and, and mediated small uh, claims court cases in Hayward, California. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to go take, then I saw this thing and I could go take this class through Pepperdine University. So I go, I walk in and there was like 40 people in the class. I was the only non-attorney in the class. 
and I did this whole Pepperdine class. It was discounted because it was through Solano County, uh, and I got this. But I was like, you know what? That's pretty cool that I could go in there and hang hang with these attorneys. And here's an, like a non college, you know, person who yeah. can negotiate with the best of them. So I, I've done random stuff like that, but I constantly like. I'm always improving the game. I'm always improving the game. I'm, I'm listening to different investors for my investing game. I'm always, you know, I'm always doing that. And I think that's a good way to go, but you have to take action. And I, and I've, what I've realized is I don't have to become an expert in everything. I can, you know, it's okay to learn, keep learning. That's great. But also it's about the actions, right? The actions. And, and so like when I started my podcast three years ago, I knew I wouldn't get any traction, right, for the first hundred episodes. And so most people would just quit, right? They quit after their 10 episodes on their podcast. And like my topic, I talk about financing. It's never going to be my, my show is never going to get take off like a Ryan Pineda show. It's just not that genre. But I can't tell you how many leads come in now because I stayed consistent. Yep. I did 580 videos, Gosh. right? But, but, but it became, you became consistent. And what sticks out the most as far as influential things in my life recently, I would say, is who, not how. It was a good influence. Just like just it was a quick mindset shift. And then when I when I listened to David Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me on Audible. Powerful book, bro. I'd keep telling everybody, listen to it on Audible. Yeah. Like the book is amazing, but Goggins at the end of every chapter to me is powerful. Yeah. David Goggins is like, I, and I think like I've seen him do some local social mo media posts. And I see him, he's running in Las Vegas somewhere. And somebody just said they saw him. So I'm hoping I see him when I'm driving around one day. Because that guy to me is just amazing. Like, he talks about building calluses on your hands and building calluses on your mind. And it's so true. You have to have thick skin. Like, I'm, like I was telling my coach the other day, I negotiated this deal. So I had this high-producing real estate agent. And she, like, she called me crying. Her and her husband were trying to buy their dream home. And like, she couldn't figure out how to like, she had some rental pro these rental properties and like she needed to do this, like these chain of events so she could end up qualifying for her to buy her unoccupied house or whatever. So I figured out how to do this deal and I did her a $2 million loan. And, and then she had to pay off one of the, it was secured against two properties and she had to pay off one of them. And like, there, it was just like, we had to pay off the other one first and the bank uh, the lender wouldn't allow it. And I was dealing in the, like the stress, right? I'm de I, I was taking her stress on and for like six days. I couldn't sleep because I was like, oh, I, I couldn't match it. Like this not closing because of me. It wasn't even my fault, but for six yeah. days. And so what the, one of the realizations that I came up with is that you, you have to learn how like not to take other stress on when you're in the real estate business, whether you're a real estate agent, a loan broker, you're a wholesaler, you're a flipper. There's a lot of pieces. You got to like put up the wall and understand like, hey, I know I do. I'm honorable. I do my best on every occasion to do the right thing to make it a win win. And like, that's it. The bottom line, like I can't take everybody's stress on because in real estate lending, what do you think everybody says to me? Oh, I have to close like next week. And then they just got me the stuff. And like, it's like, why didn't you get the stuff three weeks ago? If you knew your loan was due and you needed to refinance it. So you have to learn how to deflect that. And when I was younger, I didn't know how to deflect stress. And that, and this business isn't for everybody if you can't handle that kind of stress. Because you always have to just, you know, you have to learn to tell people. You have to put people in their seat. And I'm a very passive guy. You, I think you mentioned that about me before. I'm like pretty passive. Yes. 
You're I'm pretty, super passive. Yeah. I was like, bro, do you want to speak, bro? You, ha you haven't said a fucking word. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, I, I'm super passive, you know, and, and um, but you do, you have to stand up. Like, I'm a pretty tough guy, but I'm just laid back. I'm passive. Like, nobody ever, growing up, nobody would mess with me because I was always stronger than everybody. They just knew, like, I'm not a, I'm not a jerk. Just don't, like, and people, I respect people. So, like, I think people sense that about other people. Like, nobody would start a fight with me because I was always respectful of other people. Mm -hmm. They're going to pick somebody, they're going to pick a fight with somebody else. And so I was always that way. Um, but you do have to, you do have to kind of stand up for yourself. And you do have to grow a thick skin to be in this real estate business. And, like, I hear these newbies getting started and they're like, well, I don't know if I should buy in this market, this market, this market, this market, or that market, or I should do subject to investing or I should do flipping or whatever. Right. Like it's like, it kind of painful when the newbies are like that new. And, it, and I wish there was something I could help those people with. Cause it's like such a common occurrence. Yeah. And we'll say, and well, I, pick a lane, execute against the lane for a year. And I promise you it works because everybody who's telling you all these things are people who are successful at these things. If you follow the path for a year, you'll be fine. But most people don't follow the path. You know what I'm saying? That's what I personally think. Yeah. And like I, they keep bouncing. They don't see any traction. Oh, we're going to the next thing. They don't see any traction. Oh, we're going to the next thing. Yeah. And it's the whole 80-20 rule. And this is kind of like the truth of everything. Out of 100 real estate agents, 20, 20 of them are actually going to make money. And then out of that 20%, 20% of those 20% will be Make ultra six. Right. It's just the way that works. So real estate investing for some people is very different. If you don't have money, if you don't have credit, if you don't have deal flow and you can't find deals, you got to like reverse and go back and go, okay, well, what can I do? Let's focus on one thing I can do to move the needle. And so many people, they have all these ideas and they just never can move the needle for one thing. Right. And that is the big problem in real estate investing. We have so many newbies come to our meetups. I want to do this. I want to do that. Start with yeah. one thing. And my, that might just be like finding a deal in your local market and finding a, um, somebody that can co-wholesale a deal that has a buyer's list. And you, you split the fee. Or maybe you have some money and you just find a wholesaler that will serve you up a deal. But yeah, that, that, that gets frustrating. And I feel bad for people. right? Because everybody wants to improve their life. Everybody wants to improve their lives. But... Um, I don't know. It just, it's it, the, the world's unfair and you can, you can come to all these meetups, but you have to like have it right in here to make the decision to actually do it. Well, we can end on this. The biggest thing is like when people like they get like you, they want to learn everything. But the biggest thing is you go take action and then you're like, okay, now I'm at a problem. I don't have to solve it. Then you learn and then you continue taking action. Right. So it's the perfect mixture of going and learning because the majority of problems that people think they're going to face will never exist and don't exist currently. Right. So they're solving against these things that won't ever influence them. To where if they just go out, take action, then the next thing comes up. Usually you can fucking Google it and you're going to get the info you need. Right. And then that way you're actually making progress and you're learning at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's true. I, I think everybody needs a coach. So whoever's out there that's in that predicament, go get yourself the right coach. Yeah. To, get, a, you know, get a mentor. Yeah. Get, or a coach. Yeah. Yeah. Get a mentor. 
could be a paid or non-paid mentorship. And um, don't be afraid to pay for mentorship. Like I'm paying good money for my coach and I, I, I couldn't be more happy. I don't know how long I'll keep the coach, right? Like maybe it's every, I'll keep them every, every week for the next five years. Or maybe I say in six months, like, hey, let's go once, once a month. I don't know if I need a coach every week, right? Like, I don't know. But for mm -hmm. right now, if I feel like I'm getting an ROI, I feel like I'm in another growth growth mode right now. So I'm going to continue to, to get weekly coaching. Oh, yeah. Where can people find out more about you? YouTube channel, Instagram. Sure. Uh, the best way to go is just go to investorfinancing.tv. That takes you to my uh, YouTube channel. Subscribe there. There's all my calendar links in there. You can book a call with me. and uh, Or you can go to boextein.com. Or you can go to investorfinancingpodcast.com. You can find me. You can Google me. I'm all over. I love it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Bo, thank you so much for coming on and dropping so many nuggets, man. All right. It was awesome.